go to 1 Kings 2, we're going to turn there. I want to do Living Translation. And I want to start our, our sermon. Uh, we're going to look at Joab. My sermon is entitled Joab's Demise. The Lord spoke to me about two months ago. I said, Lord, I'm going to be preaching after all my fathers in the faith. And my theme is enduring to the end. And I said, Lord, what would you have me minister on? And so as I'm praying, he's dealing with me about Joab. And I know the story of Joab. I know how he ends up. I'm like, well, that's great. I have the ending. So what? What do we do? What do we do? So I want this sermon to be kind of like a cliched movie where the movie opens up with your protagonist on the chopping block or the firing squad. And the inner monologue says, so I bet you're wondering how I got here, huh? (laughs) So we're going to start with the demise of Joab and see how he got there because he did not endure to the end. And if you know the story of Joab, we're going to run through the, 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 the CV, the resume of Joab briefly, quickly, when we realize what a tremendous man he was. And I still preach him as a great man all the way till the end. And what good does it to have a great beginning and be a flash in the pan? We've heard it once or twice this week. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. So here, Schmitty, in, uh, so let's begin in cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 28. I'm going to put it in the New Living Translation. Joab had not joined Absalom's earlier rebellion. Absalom was David's son who started an insurrection. But now Absalom is dead. Joab killed him. Now his other son, David's other son, Adonijah, has begun the same insurrection but David's older and feeble. Joab had not joined Absalom's earlier rebellion, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, because Solomon had Adonijah put to death, he ran to the sacred tent, the tabernacle of the Lord, and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. Pause there. You got that picture? I'm going to throw this picture up of the brazen altar. This is not Solomon's brazen altar. It's much bigger. This is the mosaic brazen altar. I want you to see the horns of the altar. The the brazen altar was about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, four and a half feet tall. And so the horns, those are the corner pieces. They were commanded in the architecture of the brazen altar. Those were the most sacred parts of the altar. The blood of the sacrifice was always rubbed on there. That is literally the horn of salvation. All right? So to run into the tabernacle and lay hold of the horn is to cry out for mercy. Okay? That's what Joab has done. He hears that Adonijah, who led the rebellion, has been killed. And and Joab runs to the tabernacle to grab a hold of those horns. He's in the holy place, well, not the holy of holies. He's in the tabernacle. Anybody could go in the tabernacle. Only the priest could go into the, t- uh, the tabernacle proper, the, mo- uh, the holy, then the most holy place. But now I want you to see what the horns look like. All right, let's go back to move on to verse 29. When this was reported to King Solomon, he sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to execute him. Because that's what you do with traitors and insurrectionists and usurpers. Benaiah went to the sacred tent of the Lord and said to Joab, The king orders you to come out. But Joab answered, No, I will die here. So Benaiah returned to the king and told him what Joab had said. The king replied, Do as he said, kill him there beside the altar. Murder this man in the tabernacle of God. And this reminds me of a New Testament verse. 
Those that broke Moses' law died without mercy. Now, if you know verse 27, of how much sore punishment shall we, we, New Testament verse written to New Testament believers, our theme is enduring to the end. We'll go to Hebrews here in maybe 30 minutes. I'm not promising it'll be 30. <laughs> Dr. Jacob's already laid hands on everybody five times. You don't need any ministry of the Spirit. <laughs> I'm going to teach you. Do as he said. Kill him there beside the altar and bury him. This will remove the guilt of Joab's senseless murders from me and from my father's family. Joab died without mercy, though he gripped the literal horn of salvation. Now, we know Corinthians tells us these stories were written as examples for us. We know we have hermeneutical permission to principalize them. Outward ordinances avail nothing without faith in the living God. And just because you can grip the horns, and what had happened was Adonijah had run to the same tabernacle a few weeks earlier, gripped the horns, found salvation, found mercy. And Solomon said, I won't kill you. But if you cause any trouble, I will kill you. That's his brother, Solomon's big brother, Adonijah. And what Adonijah did was ask for David's last concubine, Abishag, a very pretty young girl. He said, let me marry her. And Solomon said, I wish you hadn't asked for that. You're a pervert. Benaiah, kill him. And he found no more mercy. How many times are we going to be dealt with by God before it costs us? Solomon's the prince of peace. That's what his name literally means. He said, listen, I'm going to give you mercy, brother. I'm going to let you go. Even though you caused an insurrection, you tried to steal the throne from me, I'm going to cut you some mercy. You ask for mercy, but you make any more trouble, and you're done for. And what does he do? Flexes a perverted muscle. Flexes a perverted desire. Wants his daddy's young damsel. We need to ask ourselves, who was Joab? Because here we have this bizarre, peculiar death. Almost it seems unfair. But who was he? Why is this so significant? In a word, Joab was, gen was David's military general. And Joab was David's most trusted, mighty man of valor. His confidant. A man that risked his life for David time and time and time again. His name means Jehovah Helps. His lineage is intriguing, and it's in line with much of David's reign. Now, this is where I get to flex my teaching muscle. One of the things about teachers is that we bring stuff out of the Word that you say, that was in there, and it makes you hungrier to study deeper. Evangelists make you love the lost. Prophets make you want to seek the presence of God. Apostles want you to go around the world with them. And teachers just make you go, I don't know my Bible. My utmost for his highest ain't cutting it anymore. I need to go a little deeper. I'm not against Oswald J. Chambers. I cut my teeth on that. But you got to go a little deeper than a daily devotional. Wrap it up in 10 minutes. Drink your coffee. Take a picture on Instagram. Get 100 likes. That ain't a walk with Christ. You have your rewards. <laughs> Spend more time arranging your Bible and your coffee cup. Get the lighting right. You spend more time on that than you actually do the devotional. Just so you can have your narcissistic felt needs rubbed. There you go. And that is the condition of the American church. I call it Ecclesia by Instagram. 
<laughs> David, the son of Jesse, had two sisters. David, King David, had two sisters. Abigail, he married a woman named Abigail. This is a different Abigail. He had a sister named Abigail and another sister named Zariah. This is fascinating because these were only half-sisters to David. The Bible tells us that the father of Abigail was Nahash. The Bible very clearly says Abigail's father was Nahash. Nahash was the Ammonite king. Think about that. Nahash is the Ammonite king who attacked Israel under King Saul. And they were sealed up in a siege, and they said, King Nahash of the Ammonites, this is Transjordan on the other side, they said, can we make terms of surrender with you? And Nahash says, yeah, bore your right eye out, and I'll let you live. It's in your Bible, 1 Samuel. This is what the teacher does. He makes you go, I don't know my Bible. I got to stop cherry-picking the word of faith. I got to stop looking at the Bible for a bless me recipe. I got to study my Bible to know my God, not just blessings. We got to quit treating the Bible like Uber Eats, just lazy delivery of goodies. So Nahash, the Ammonite king, <laughs> Nahash, the Ammonite king, when we're first introduced to him, he's going to war against Israel under King Saul. And he says, hey, yeah, bore your eye out, your right eye, and I'll let you live. And they're like, mm, all right, I'm not feeling that. Can you give us a couple days? <laughs> Let me see if there's anybody to help us. King Saul arises. God anoints him. That kind of shows his monarchical pedigree. And he has a victory. And Nahash is driven back. That's Nahash, the Ammonite. Nahash, the father of Abigail. So follow me in the genetics. David is the son of Jesse. His sister Abigail is the daughter of Nahash. So how does the parentage work? Nahash, the Ammonite, and Jesse shared a woman. What I'm teaching you is not my made-up anything. This is a well-held, well-taught doctrine. You can Google it later if you want to. Just trust me on this. It's also assumed that Zariah's father was also Nahash. If we assume that Jesse had relations with a woman Nahash did, it's either Nahash's concubine, Nahash's mistress, or Nahash one of his wives. He's a king. Polygamy is a common thing. What that does then, the conjecture, is it means that at some point Jesse sired David with an Ammonite, making David half Ammonite. Now David's already one-eighth Moab because of his great-grandmother Ruth. Um, yeah, Naomi. She's a Moabite princess. Jewish tradition says she is the, the granddaughter of, of Eglon, the Moabite. So now we have an issue because if this conjecture is accurate, there's no reason not to be. It means that David's not just half Jew. He's only three-eighths Jew. He's five-eighths Gentile. And all the laws of Moses that condemn Gentiles apply to him which lets us understand the significance of David as king and premier type of Christ. Because under King David, he had the tabernacle of David that used Gentiles as gatekeepers and Gentiles as worshipers. 
and there was no curtain for the Holy of Holies, and there was no sacrifice, only 24-7 worship. You're quiet because you're like, I didn't know that was in my Bible. Because you do a daily Bible reading and not a daily Bible study. I want to help you endure to the end. Or you can just keep wasting your time on Facebook and reading that. You can only watch so many cat videos. You never learn anything about Nahash watching cat videos. If this conjecture, and we're going to keep calling it that, but it feels really good to me. If this conjecture is accurate, it answers a lot of questions about David's life. Number one, it answers Psalm 51.5. I was conceived in sin. Not with sin. I was conceived in sin. The act of procreation is not sin unless fornication is involved. Or you've married a Gentile. But Nahash isn't dead in the lifetime of David. So whatever happened with this concubine, mistress, wife, something legitimate ain't happening. It's illegitimate. It also explains Jesse's omission of David in the presence of Samuel when Samuel comes to town and everybody's terrified that Samuel's, have you come in peace? I've come in peace. Bring me your boys. Why do they, if they're terrified of the prophet, Nathan, why do they leave David out in the field? Well, he's not legitimate. It also explains David's mistreatment by his older brothers at the battle of Goliath. He shows up obeying his dad, bringing bread and wheat and parched corn and cheese. And his brothers, his oldest brother says, what are you doing here, you troublemaker? You're always into no good. And the modern translation says, David says, what have I done now? I just asked a question. Big brothers don't abuse little brothers. They look out for them. But there's some kind of inter-family hostility. It also helps us explain David's unique complexion. Red, ruddy. Only two people in the Bible describe that way, him and Esau. Esau who became the father of the Edomites. He doesn't have pure Jewish blood running through his veins. It also explains David's desire to bless Nahash's son when Nahash does die. Hanun is his son. And he says this, I will be good to Nahash, and I will be good to Hanun because Nahash has been good to me. The same Nahash that tried to kill your predecessors? How was he good to David? Well, they had a common sibling. It's almost like Nahash may have been David's kind of stepdad. Because Abigail's Nahash's daughter, David's Abigail's brother, sister, and there's this family, this familiarity there. Why, why would he, how would he have been good to David? Well, they had kinship. It also explains why David would never enter the tabernacle of Moses when it was set up at Gibeon. And the Bible says clearly in, in uh, Chronicles, it says, and he was afraid to enter because the law says a Moabite and an Ammonite shall never enter the tabernacle for 10 generations. David knew the law. I want you to understand that David's heart to honor God was constrained by the law. And one of the things that made David so right in the eyes of God was his desire to please his God. And you can only please somebody if you know what their expectations are. We're wanting to try to serve God without knowing anything he wants. We're teaching people you can serve God without obeying him. 
And that's lawlessness. That's the doctrine of Balaam. God can't destroy us if we serve him, but you teach people that God doesn't care what you do, that you can do what you want because it's covered under grace and it's under the blood and you've always already been forgiven, so don't worry about any of it. God himself will wipe you out. That's the doctrine of Balaam, which things Jesus Christ hates. It explains why David fled to Ammon when Absalom took over. When David has to flee, he goes right to the Ammonites, to the gates of Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonite city. And who comes out to meet him but Nahash's other son, Shobi. And Shobi brings David food for his entourage. What? What? Absalom dethrones you and you run to the Ammonite king. And the Ammonite king comes out and takes care of you and your family. It explains the significance of David's tabernacle being 5'8th Gentile. He erected his tabernacle in the city of David and it housed the Ark of the Covenant. It was a house of worship for all nations. The tabernacle was eventually broken down and housed in Solomon's temple at its dedication. And Amos 9, 11, quoted by James in the book of Acts, says, God will erect again the tabernacle of David. And he says that in response to Gentiles being born again. How are we to take all this? The Gentiles are being born again. And James says, well, you know, Amos said, in the last days, God will erect the tabernacle of David, where Jews and Gentiles worship Yahweh together. What does this have to do with anything? David did good until he started playing with lawlessness. So you see a lot of his maneuvers, a lot of his fear of God. He knows his pedigree. If we're accurate on the half Ammonite, we know he's at least one-eighth Moabite. With that we know that we know that we know that we know that we know. And that still disqualifies him from the tabernacle because an Ammonite and a Moabite can't enter in for 10 generations. He's only four removed past Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi. Boaz. Boaz was full blood. Boaz wasn't even full blood. He was half Jerichoitis because his mama was Rahab the harlot. There's a lot of watered down blood here. David does well until he starts playing with lawlessness, picking and choosing the laws he wants to obey. Now, a premier one is you know, there's this big one that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a big one. I mean, it's like top 10. There's another top 10 one called thou shalt not murder. I mean, it's not like you need to know the other 600. Just get those first 10 right. David knows he can't enter. David knows he can't do this. David knows he can't do that. He honors God, but then he starts getting lawless. So what's fascinating, to back up a little bit, when Nahash, the Ammonite king, dies, and David says, I will be good to his son Hanun because his father was good to me, and he sends his ambassadors his ambassadors say, hey, David sends his greetings. We want to be good to you. Nahash's son, Hanan, listens to the advisors and say, this is a trick. David is out to get us. So they mistreat the ambassadors. They shave half their beards, cut their britches off so their buttocks are hanging out. You're asking for a fight if you do that to David. And they send those men back. They're ashamed. We know the story. Hopefully you do. There's a, it really says that. Their buttocks were hanging out. And uh, they're ashamed. So David says, what happened? Hey, they did that. Stay in Jericho till your beard grows out. And David looks at Joab. We're back on Joab. Joab? Whoosh. Joab says, sir, yes, sir. Joab 
starts to muster the troops. When Hanun realizes we have really vexed David, they start hiring armies. When David hears that they hired armies, he's like, all right, Joab, get after it. So David's man, Joab, we're talking about how faithful Joab is. He musters an army and he fights the Ammonites and the Assyrians for a year, wipes them out and pushes everybody back to the city of Rabbah, the capital city where David ran when Absalom pursued. But this is several years earlier. He lays siege there at Rabbah with his cousin, Hanun, the king, the new king, laid up. And when it was time to go lay siege, that's when David stays behind and has an adulterous affair. He commits adultery. He covers it up. Rabbah and the army led by Hanun is who kills Uriah. Joab is so admirable, he actually fights in the battle with Uriah because he's honorable even though he's the one that delivered the letter that says, move Uriah to the hottest part. And the Bible tells us that when the Moabites, uh, excuse me, the Ammonites came out to fight, they fight, they fought against Joab and they killed Uriah. So Joab's so honorable, he's going to sit there and fight for his man too. I'm proving to you how worthy and honorable Joab was. And in this season, David's falling. He's beginning to be lawless. So he has an adulterous affair. Then he kills Uriah or has Uriah killed and when Nathan the prophet comes to him, he tells him the parable about the man who had a little lamb and he was taken and stolen and eaten. And, and he asks David this question, David, what should be done? And David gets mad. And he says, he should repay fourfold. That's the law of Moses. He's quoting the law of Moses. He wants righteous judgment. But David, you just had an adulterous affair. You just killed a man, a righteous man, a holy man, and now you want to quote scripture? Lawlessness. In fact, Exodus 22, show it to you. Exodus 22, verse 1 If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. David quotes the law of God, though he just broke it heinously twice. This is a demonstration of lawlessness. And it's about to cost David. If I would say this, if we don't understand the law of God, we're not going to be able to interpret most of these stories because the whole framework is the law of God. And we're extracting stories out of context and applying them to us in our modern charismatic woke era, having no idea how these stories are unfolding. The heinousness of, of David's judgment is because he is pious. He's pompous. He's quoting the law of God. That's a very obscure law. It's a, an exchange rate for killed or stolen ox or sheep. And I got this one right because it's a sheep and it's four. He repairs four. Well, did you remember the simple one? Like, don't kill anybody. Like, don't sleep with anybody. You already have 10 concubines and five wives. Is that not enough? That's another law he broke because Deuteronomy says when you have a king, don't multiply wives. But David started. He was lawless picking and choosing the laws he wanted to obey. And you see his kingdom at this point, it's coming down. So then what happens with David, he in his religiosity invokes the judgment of God. He says, basically, I must repay four. And he loses four sons. The first son to die is Abner. Abner rapes Tamar. Absalom kills Abner. Then David loses the son he conceived with Bathsheba. That son dies. 
Then Joab, his trusted man, kills Absalom, and Absalom deserved to die. And then Adonijah dies. That's four sons for Uriah's life because he was lawless and would pick and choose the scriptures he wanted to obey and dismiss the ones that inconvenienced him. Lawlessness brought down the greatest king Israel ever had. A man who was able with a right heart to do other things that were in violation, like be an Ammonite and walk into the tabernacle and worship at the ark. One who was able to say to Jehoiada or Abiathar, get me the linen ephod. I want to be a priest. I need to hear from God. He was able to break other laws because his heart was right. And he was a forerunner of Christ, breaking down the middle wall petition between Jew and Gentile. This is just an overview. We'll, we'll weave these back together. Coming back to Joab. Joab, remember David had two sisters, Abigail and Zariah. Joab was one of Zariah's sons. Zariah had three sons, uh, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel. And these were mighty men of valor, but these were also David's nephews. So Joab's legacy is that he was Joab's nephew. So as a kinsman, he would have been gathered to David. We're jumping back in time at the cave of Dulem when David fled for his life because the Bible says all of his kinsmen came to him. So Joab's his nephew. So is Asahel. Uh, so is uh, all these guys that are his family. And they, uh, Joab is able to submit to his uncle, probably younger than him, and become a mighty man of valor. He overcame the sin of familiarity and family politics to submit to his uncle and be made into something he would have never been on his own. This also reveals David's lack of concern for ethnicity. What do I care if you're fully Ammonite? I'm five-eighths. You really see most of David's mighty men are not pure Judas, Judites. This was a common theme in the Davidic kingdom. Joab became one of David's mighty men of valor. Joab becomes the chief general when he takes the stronghold of Jabus. He led the way. He claimed the title. He bravely earned the title of general, building the, the reputation of Joab. He had a great pedigree. He risked his life for his uncle. He earned this position, and you can't become great by maintaining mediocrity. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. You don't... <laughs> one man of God said... The formula of your life is perfectly tweaked to keep giving you what you already have. If you don't like what you have, tweak the formula of your life. Joab, after he becomes a general, he rebuilds the city of Milo. He's not just a military leader. He's an architect and a contractor. He very quickly earns the seat of secretary of defense or the general. He's part of David's national leadership cabinet. He leads multiple military campaigns at David's behest, always risking his life for David. But I want you to see that when David begins to play with lawlessness, so do the people around him, because it always starts at the top. It's trickle-down economics. Joab never showed any signs, any real signs of lawlessness until David did. If a pastor wants to know why his church is dirty, he needs to look at himself. If a pastor has rampant sex in his church, who on your leadership team is, is the issue? Our lifestyles preachers preach louder than our sermons. Our private lifestyles preach way louder than any sermon from any pulpit. 
when David gets judged, we're going to weave their stories back together again to show you how honorable Joab is. David gets judged. He repents. It looks like when Nathan judges him for the death of Uriah and the adultery that he was about to be sentenced to death. He says, thou shalt not die, but the sword shall never depart from your house, and it never did. Right after that, David gets word that Joab has conquered the besieged city of Arabah, the hometown of Nahash, and now Hanun. And Joab is so honorable, he says, Sir, the city has been taken. Quickly come, you claim it, so I don't get credit. Now here's what's particular again about the Ammonite connection. So David goes in there, he doesn't kill Hanun. He takes his 75-pound crown and sets it on his own head and leaves the Ammonite king alone. Why? Because they probably kin. It was just like, quit picking a fight. Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. But he doesn't kill Hanan. Just takes his crown off his head, and they just pay tribute for a while. Joab encouraged David to call the excommunicated Absalom back home. Joab stayed faithful to David during Absalom's mutiny. Joab killed Absalom for the insurrection, then rebuked David for weeping over the traitor. And he, he's the only guy to ever rebuke David except for Nathan the prophet. And he says, how dare you, sir, turn the celebration into mourning? And he says, sir, I think you love your enemies more than you love your friends. It's a harsh rebuke from Joab. And David takes it, and God doesn't get mad at Joab. This is a good man faithful. He just risked his life in the cave of Dulam. Saul's hunting him. Now Absalom's hunting him. And Joab is always aligning himself with David to the end. Joab obeyed David and ensured the death of a venomous traitor named Sheba. Joab honorably disagreed with David's census. Remember that? Satan provoked David to take a census. And Joab says, sir, this isn't good. This isn't right. May God make Israel even more. But why would you do this? And you know why? Because it violated the law of Moses. The law of Moses says when you take a census, require a temple tax of every male over 20 that the temple can be cared for, the tabernacle. And David didn't do it for that reason. David did it for pride. Joab is holding him accountable to the word of God because David is becoming lawless. And David, Joab doesn't finish the job. He becomes insubordinate, but God doesn't judge David, uh, Joab. He judges David. In fact, uh, Exodus 30 says, if you don't take the census right, a plague will break out on you. So what happens when David does the census wrong? A plague breaks out. So you violate the law of God and 70,000 people die. Once again, it starts with the leadership. To summarize with Joab, nephew, disciple, soldier, general, secretary, defense, contractor, advisor, secret service, assassin, loyalist in time of insurrection. Loyal, that is, until the end. I don't know. I'm not a dirty man. I just fear all these preachers around me going belly up, knowing that it's been in the been in the shadows for a long time, watching the American church flush easy-to-read doctrine so that they can be liked on that adult middle school thing called social media. And the Bible says, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. This may be a bad confession or a lack of faith, but right now my heart trembles. I just want to finish my race 
with honor. And I got a lot of race left in me. I'm not even 47 yet. It's not like I'm not knocking on 50 too much. But I see the great heroes of the Bible compromise and fold, which means anybody can. So a sermon like this should put a fear in us to say, God, have mercy. Show me where I've begun to play with easy-to-read New Testament law. We're not under a law of census and tax. We're not not under Ammonites and Moabites not being able to come to the tabernacle. That's not our laws. Ours are easier. And we're still failing them. Forgive. Walk in love. Don't forsake the assembling together of the saints. Be generous in your giving. Share your faith. Submit to your parents. Submit to your husband. These are easy. (laughs) He was loyal until David's strength began to wane. And the warning with David, excuse me, and Joab, David, I believe David opened up his kingdom to this spirit of lawlessness, and it began to creep Because when the insurrection happens a second time, it's with his most trusted people. It's not even Absalom. In fact, go go to 1 Kings now. We're going to pick up with some scripture. Actually, Josh, let's look at this in the New Living Translation as well. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. I'm convinced David's flirtation with lawlessness opened his people to it. Not everybody, because no matter what a pervert does, there'll be people under him that are strong enough to resist it. But then again, Pastor Kerry, we're responsible for the weak ones too. If anybody fails, I don't want to have any part in it. People will fail on their own. I don't need to be the one that tempts them or gives them some weird perverse grace permission. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. King David was now very old, and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. So his advisors told him, Let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you, my Lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. So they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl, and they found Abishag from Shunem and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she looked after the king and took care of him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. About that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. We've already seen this before. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers, just like Absalom did, and recruited 50 men to run in front of him, just like Absalom did, because that demon has been opened and allowed into the kingdom. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time. That's lawlessness. That is lawlessness. I love King but he was a horrible father. I had one of our tremendous word of faith leaders come to me one time and say, have you know, he's much older. He's a father in the faith, not a father to me, but a father in the faith. He said, we word of faith people were great at revival, but horrible at parenting. And he said, we emphasize revival and faith, but not parenting. That's lawlessness. When the law says discipline a child, train them up in the way they should go. And you don't emphasize that. You're you're picking and choosing the laws you want. I have no desire to be a big church. I love you all, but I'm not responsible for your salvation. I'm responsible for my kids. And why gain a mega church and lose my kids to transgenderism or fornication, drunkenness? I'm not interested in it.
fool to watch people go before me and fail and not, not avoid their pitfalls. Never had he disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing this? Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. People are always a sucker for good-looking people. Remember, it says of Jesus, there was no beauty in him that we desired. Adonijah took Joab, son of Zariah, David's nephew, and Abiathar, the priest. This was David's most trusted priest. This was the priest that always brought the linen ephod to David when he needed an answer into his confidence, and they agreed to help him become king. David's still alive. Why? How? Joab, such a track record, laying down your life, like dodging death again and again and again and again for David. And now at the very end, you're going to turn your back on him? Let me read you something. Hold that thought. This just I'm glad I... I found this. This was an interview I found years ago, and the Lord reminded me of it. So I said, I got to go back and find that. This is an interview with Brother Andrew. How many of you ever heard of Brother Andrew, God's smuggler? He's in heaven. He passed away a year or two ago. Uh, we have his book. You should get Brother Andrew's biography. It's one of the greatest faith biographies of the last hundred years. He's a Dutch brother. He went by Brother Andrew for a long time because it was too dangerous. He smuggled Bibles into communism and uh, after communism fell, he'd smuggle Bibles. He was friends with the Taliban and would read the Gospel of John to the Taliban leaders. Tremendous man. He was asked about mega ministry. He said, underground churches in China are mega churches when you think about the number of members, but they have no mega building. They certainly don't have no mega salary, no mega fame, and no mega books and all that. I think God has a different set of values, and we should do well to look into that from Scripture and be humble. If people are being used by the Lord, praise God for that. And I'm not envious. I wish them success. He names a name. And I have been at Rick Warren's church. Now, this is Brother Andrew. He's like 95 years old. He don't care nothing about nobody. He risked his life a thousand times, won a million people to Christ, saw nobody he ever feared. Who did, he's not impressed with nothing in America. He's Dutch. Somebody once said, told me, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> I think he kind of held that personal doctrine. He said, they gave me a special award for being old and still following Jesus. Can you think of that? So I got up for the big thank you, and I said something like, you Americans are crazy. How can you reward an old man for still following Jesus? All he wants to do is go to heaven and make it. You don't have to reward him in the world. Instead of rewarding an old man who still follows Jesus... You should punish all the rich people in your church who spend all their money on bigger boats and bigger cars and bigger houses. Let me finish. i got to swipe here. That should be the system. But don't reward an old man who is near eternity because he still follows Jesus. That is the calling of all of us. What's your problem? Well, frankly, he says, they never invited me back. Joab, so, so great a man until the very end. He did not endure to the end. Yes, David opened the door to the spirit of lawlessness, began to pick and choose the laws he wanted and didn't want. But it opened the door to other people under him to do the same thing. Lawless parents produce lawless kids. Lawless pastors produce lawless sheep. Lawless bosses have lawless 
employees. Lawless presidents or senators have lawless staff. Yeah. We're back in 1 Kings. Let me keep reading. I'm, I'm probably 10 minutes from landing this thing, so bear with me. We've we got a place to tie a nice little bow to this. Abiathar the priest, into his confidence, they agreed to help him become king. But Zadok the priest, that's another one of David's trusted priests. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Benaiah was one of the three mighty men of valor. This is the man that killed two lion-like men on a snowy day. He jumped in a pit, killed a lion on a snowy day. And I like to point out, why did he kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day? Because he wanted to be like his pastor. This is my favorite part. Of, I like telling this story. I preach it this way every time. He said, I'm sure he was in the cave of Dulem, Beniah. And I'm sure David kept talking about killing lions and bears and killing lions. I killed Goliath. You guys ever hear about me killing Goliath? Yeah. Kill Goliath. Giant. You guys hear that story? And I'm sure they're like, shut up with your stories. <laughs> we hear the same one. Yeah. Oh, no, please tell us. How many lions did you kill? But then there were some that said, I want to be just like that. Yeah. So why do you kill a lion in a pit? on a snowy day. Leave the lion alone. It's in a pit. <laughs> like it's perfectly cool. It's not like you're in the pit with it and it falls into the pit with you. So I envision it like he's walking past it. He hears a roar. What's that? Hey, he sees this lion in a pit. Here's our chance to be like David. We can finally do something like our pastor. And I'm sure that guy's like, well, have at it. There's only one of them, and I'm not getting down in there. And he jumps in this pit. Now there's only one way out. Be like your pastor. So he kills this lion. But then it says he killed an, a giant Egyptian who was almost nine feet tall, whose spear was like a weaver's beam, and he killed the giant with his own weapon. I've heard that before, too. This is the guy that wanted to be just like his David. And everywhere he went, he looked for an opportunity to be just like his David. But this man's a little holier because when he saw his pastor swerve, he said, I've been taught too well to follow you now. And then he sees this conference and he says, you know, I love my David. He made some mistakes, but I'm going to stay true to the vision. And I'm not following in the footsteps of Absalom or Adonijah. So Zadok does not join him. That is Adonijah, neither does Beniah, son of Jehoiada, or Nathan the prophet, Shemireh, and David's personal bodyguard refused to support Adonijah. And so they have this big dinner, and they begin to say, he's going to be king, he's going to be king, and then the word gets back to Bathsheba, and they say, listen, you've got to do something, you've got to go talk to David, it's going to be an insurrection, you're not going to survive, they're going to chase you, Solomon won't be king, so they have a conference with David. And meanwhile, Adonijah and his host are having this big party, this big celebration, and now he's going to be king. And then all of a sudden, David is able to come out from underneath all of that. He anoints Solomon. They blow a trumpet. Everybody cheers, God save Solomon. And all of a sudden, everybody having this insurrection dinner hears the noise of Israel and the coronation of the new king, and they're terrified. <laughs> and so everybody scatters. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, let's jump there, Schmitty. Verse 1. As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son Solomon. Now, here's the deal. The insurrection took place. It did not work. That leaves Adonijah in trouble. That leaves 
uh, Joab in trouble. That leaves all the insurrectionists. Abiathar leaves them in trouble because they have sided. Nobody's come to repent. Nobody's bothered to say, please forgive me, David. That was really, really dumb. They just kind of like ignore it, hoping it'll feel better if they don't talk about it. We've all been there. And if you're going to like stab somebody in the back, you should at least come back and say, I'm sorry. I meant to do it, but I was way wrong. Have mercy. They just ignore it like a lot of modern Christians do practicing lawlessness. They don't repent. They don't say, I'm sorry. They don't say, what can we do to restore this? He says in verse 2, I'm going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all of his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law. Wow, look at that. That's that motivation to do what Moses said so that you will be successful in all you do wherever you go. That is a principle that holds true to this day. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. And he, he told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of David. And there is something else. You should know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in the time of peace, standing his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Here's what I see here. As long as he was serving David and his heart was pure, his folly was covered. And I wonder if we deny Christ at the end of our race, how much of where we fail will just be left open. There's no indication this would have ever been dealt with had Joab stayed faithful. It's years in the past. David even rebuked him and said, guys, you got to stop doing this. He said, you sons of Zariah, you are wearing me out. It's too hard for me. He tells Solomon, let's keep reading, do what you think best, verse 6, but don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. Why would he say that? Because that's the law of Moses. Show you verse real quick. Oh, man. Look at Numbers 35. I'm, I'll just read it to you. I'm, I'm giving you so much scripture, but I'm at the end, kind of. <laughs> You're so gracious to listen. It's 9 o'clock. We had longer worship. Feels like a regular Wednesday night, plus 35 minutes. So <laughs> you're all right. Hey, listen, if this was a seeker-friendly message, this is like six weeks' worth of teaching. <laughs> or at least 300 TikTok videos. <laughs> Numbers 35, 30 says, Whosoever killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. One witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. David just quoted the law of Moses. You know what he did. Kill him. That's the law of Moses. If you're going to be lawless, the law will come back and hit you even harder. It also says it in Deuteronomy 19. I'll just read it to you. Deuteronomy 19, 13. I, I want you to see how lawlessness tore everything apart, and the only way to fix it was to bring it back to obedience. If the word law makes you feel freaked out, the commandment of the word. Obedience to the word. Deuteronomy 19 says twice, you have to purge innocent blood by murdering or executing the murderer. And I want us to see that we fix things by doing the word of God again. Now, you're still in 1 Kings chapter 2. I'm going to jump down to verse 29. 
Schmitty, let's do that in NLT. What we get to here at the very end is a legal tit for tat. So let's read what we opened up with. Verse 28, 1 Kings 2.28. Joab had not joined Absalom's early rebellion, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, he ran to the sacred tent of the Lord and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. He's wanting mercy. He's one, and he's, that's a law. You can have it, except you're worthy of death. When this was reported to the king, to King Solomon, he sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to execute him. Benaiah went to the sacred tent of the Lord and said, The king orders you to come out. That is not what the king said. So the question is, why does Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he's always called Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, there's only like three or four times he's never called or not called Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, why does he kind of fudge on the king's commandments? Because even though he's a mighty man of valor that kills giants and lions, and even though this is his general he's about to kill, his father Jehoiada is the high priest. Benai is a Levite, and he has a sacred respect for the tabernacle. And he does not want to go in there, number one, kill his mentor, number two, desecrate the tabernacle. So he comes back. Joab says, no, I will die here. So Benai returned, told the king, told him what Joab said. And the king says, kill him there beside the altar and bury him. And you're like, man, that, that just feels merciless. But what Solomon said to do is also the law of Moses. Let's look at Exodus 21 real quick. I'm going to read this to you in the NLT. Almost done. Exodus 21 Verse 12, I want you to see the legal tit for tat. Lawlessness makes a mess, and the only way to fix it is with the law of God. Somebody sins against you, they violate the law of God. The only way to fix it is to obey the law of God. Forgive. It's that simple. We sin, that's a violation of law. How do we fix it? Obey the law. Repent. It's that simple. Even repentance is a commandment of God. Exodus 21, verse 12, New Living Translation, Schmitty. Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. That's what Solomon's standing on. But if it was simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. That's what the horns of the altar are, a refuge. But Solomon's already said, David's already said, this wasn't on accident. This was an intentional bloodshed in time of peace. Look at verse 14. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar, and be put to death. We are so legally retarded. We don't know the law of God to save our life. Solomon did. David did, but he played with it. The only way we can fix things is obeying Scripture. It's total heresy for all of our former superstar heroes in the body of Christ to tell us we don't need to obey Scripture and they we're free and we don't need the law of God and we don't need to obey Scripture and they start cutting and pasting and taking things out and looking to the Bible as a self-help guru manual where it's your best Friday ever and dream your little dream and God will bless your dream. That's heresy. Yeah. 
Joab's like, I, I, I can find some mercy. And David says, nope, nope, nope. Solomon, do as you see fit. You're a wise man, wisest man ever. And what's the wisdom say? Law of God, law of God, law of God, law of God, law of God. And so Joab hacks him to death, purges, obeys the law, purges the blood, which was a promise of the law, cleanses the land so the land's not cursed. And it says, and God established the kingdom of Solomon. You and I want our lives established. We must do what God's word says. Now, I understand these laws are not our laws now. Like Dr. Hanner said, we take the Old Testament, we push it through the covenant. We push it through the cross. But there's still 261 laws that come over into our lap. And we would do well to know them. Joab died without mercy. Last passage, Hebrews 10. And this is where I'm landing. Trade table is up. Seat belt is belted. It's 9:10. You're fine. Church family, we're doing nothing till Sunday morning. Don't come here. I won't be here. You guys have been awesome serving in all your capacities. It's been an awesome and a rich conference. I never thought we would be able to pull one off, but God has been gracious to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we sin willfully, that's lawlessness. After Hebrews 10, 26, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, we know the law, we choose not to do it. It's a, it's a law that gets in our way. It's an inconvenience law. The previous verse says, don't skip church. It's funny, it says, don't skip church. And if you sin willfully, I'd say 95% of church skipping is willful. <laughs> it's good. I'm a pastor. Church attendance is important to me. I mean, if I was as faithful to this pulpit as some of you are to my church, I won't be here Sunday. I've already decided tonight. That's a lot of church this week. I'm not going to be here. Wait. I feel a sniffle coming on. I'm going to need a couple days off. He said, if we sin willful, that after, after we've received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Then what does there remain, author of Hebrews, whoever you may be? I tell you what remains, a certain fearful looking for of judgment, fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law, like David, like Joab, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Look, that law is repeated in the New Testament again. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye those old people under the old covenant? Nope, it's written to us of how much sore punishment, that was them without mercy, dying. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an only thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his enemies. Oh, wait. Judgment begins where? He will judge his enemies people. Now watch the exhortation because that's pretty heavy stuff. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That doesn't feel like a positive faith confession. Well, it's called the word of faith for a reason because we were picking and choosing our promises. I, like Dr. Barclay says, I'm word of faith, old school, where the promises, good or bad, could be mine if I met the qualifications. Call to remembrance. Here's the exhortation. Call to remembrance the former days. 
in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction. Remember when you were first in love with Jesus, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you were uh, made companions of them that were so used, for you had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not, therefore, away your confidence with great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience. All of this is an exhortation to endure to the end. For you yet a little while, and he shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, that's not enduring to the end. My soul shall have no pleasure in him, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of our soul. The spirit of lawlessness will leech our faith out of us and talk us into drawing back. Matthew 7. I lied. Forgive me. That's a violation of the Ten Commandments. This reminds me of Matthew 7. Like Joab. Put Joab in there. Lord, Lord, have I not been a faithful general? Lord, Lord, have I not fought your battles? Lord, Lord, have I not built you cities like Milo? Lord, Lord, have I not defended you? Lord, Lord, did I talk you into drawing Absalom back? Lord, Lord, did not, was I not with you? And the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. Have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out devils in your name, done many mighty works? And the Lord said, depart from me. I never knew you because you practice lawlessness, doing what you want, when you want, as you want. Sometimes you do my word when it looks good, and most of the time you don't. You and I cannot endure to the end. King James says, you that practice inequity, but the word is lawlessness. We're, in, we're watching the great falling away, which is nothing more than lawlessness seducing people away from the commandments of God's word. 800 New Testament commandments. And Jesus said, and they're not grievous. They're, if he said they're not, they're not. Is he a liar? Is he exaggerating? If they're not, they're not. So my exhortation, endure to the end. You and I need to see where have we begun to pick and choose what laws we're obeying, even for our kids. Like Dr. Hanner said, the commandment says, eat the lamb. It was Dr. Barkley. Eat the lamb, even the bitter parts, the whole, even the bitter herbs, the whole thing, even the bitter parts, even the guts, the entrails, the chitlins. I don't know if you get chitlins out of a lamb. No, I don't want none of that, but you the Lord commands it. This is what we do, church. Amen. This church exists today. We almost were wiped out 16 years ago because lawlessness was in here neck deep. It killed people, literally, because folks picked and choose or chose what they wanted to do and not wanted to do. And the only way to get the presence of God is stick with the Bible, stick with the Bible, stick with the Bible, stick with the Bible. Amen? Amen.